Hello, welcome to Dust Busters, your inseparable companion podcast to His Dark Materials. I'm Jake Cunningham, and I absolutely love the His Dark Materials books. And I'm Louisa Maycock, and Jake and I have been together for almost a decade, and I have never read a single one of these books. And this podcast is supported by Penguin Random House, who published the Dark Materials books. If the TV show has made you just discover them, or if you read them years ago, or you want to skip forward and see more of Lyra's world, The Book of Dust, The Secret Commonwealth, which is set after the Dark Materials events, is out now in hardback, ebook, and audio, which is read by Michael Sheen. This week, as the show wraps up warm and travels north into the cold, we've cooked a hearty casserole of conversation to share with variety film critic Guy Lodge. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Oh. <laughs> it's lovely to have you here. And we genuinely are cooking that casserole. We really are. Yeah, we I've can been cooking it. it for a good yeah. four and a half hours. Not, not just a metaphor. Yeah. Exactly. Every one of these episodes does come with a meal. Maybe we should do a Twitter thread at the very end of everything that we've, yeah, we've made for our guests. Yeah. Uh, so, Guy, thank you for joining us at the halfway point of the series. So far, we've welcomed guests coming to the show totally innocent. We've had super fans. We've even had Dark Materials scholars. Can I ask what your relationship is to these original texts? Yeah. I am a fan of the books, but I was late to them, actually. I didn't read them. I think they were probably published when I was in my early teens. And I only came to them around the time that the first film was released, because I guess I wanted to be prepared for it. And um, I was totally engaged by them. I think they're wonderful. I was never a Harry Potter person, and I always thought these were... Um, I always thought they were going to be similar, and, and they weren't. No, and, and that's about the same for me. I, the first time I read Northern Lights, I was 18. And as I was reading it, I thought, there is no way any kid could actually read this. Surely not. Um, obviously, obviously, they did, and that's why they tried to make a children's franchise film out of it. Um, and wh- when you when you did come to them, what were your thoughts about those books? Well, I mean, for me, the the obvious comparison point was less J.K. Rowling than C.S. Lewis, of which I was a big fan as a child. And I thought, I know obviously Philip Pullman resents any kind of comparison between them, but I really think it's it's the modern answer to the Narnia series. And I think the way they very differently approach kind of their their vast narratives as allegories for religion and, and Christianity is fascinating. And I mean, there are there are whole theses to be written about it. Well, and I I was given a Catholic education and these are, these are not books that were covered during that time, surprisingly. Uh, so coming to them after I had left school and discovering them then, it was amazing to read something and actually to think of how popular it was and as they would show in the show how heretical <laughs> it was because there are some ideas particularly as it gets into the second third books that i mean could have been burned in my assembly do you yeah. think if you'd read these books when you were younger when you're at that catholic school do you think you would have engaged well i tried you, i, I, I yeah, yeah I, I was bought them um when i I don't know, 12, 13. Oh, and I tried reading them uh, or I started Northern Nights and I don't think I made it through the first chapter. Um, I mean, that's not because I was a true Christian believer. And <laughs> in that first chapter, I could tell where this was all going. Um, it, I just didn't click with me. And, and I'm not sure 
why mm. but i'm glad that eventually they clicks with me and then clicks with me over and over again because uh, they are so so good to revisit because you discover so much of them um but kai we've got you here as a film critic and you have seen the golden compass do you remember much I of it have yes i uh remember a lot of it i remember being disappointed by it but also defending it a bit more than than some from the kind of critical onslaught i thought it was a very ambitious attempt to cram far too much into one film which basically hobbled it from from the beginning because it was it was clearly kind of hedging its bets as to whether it was going to be a franchise or not so they kind of wanted it to be a complete narrative but also to leave itself open which meant that the storytelling in it was so messy yeah and, um, well, and and some of the key ideas like references to the church even have been stripped from that story yeah. um i think we must put it in the calendar louis to to go to the golden mm, compass looking, one day i'm looking forward to it i think there was a lot of kind of sincerity and beauty in it though and uh oscar winning visual effects um controversially so but you know they what else was going for the nomination at that time I think everyone expected it to be Transformers that year. So it denied Transformers an Oscar. So for that, we have no choice but to stand. So. <laughs> um, now, as, as well as someone who has seen and is slightly more favorable to the Golden Compass, maybe more than a fan of the Golden Compass guy, you are a fan of Nicole Kidman. I am a huge fan of Nicole Kidman. And I think she's one of the best things about the film. Um, but as we'll get into a bit later, I, I do think she has been possibly topped. Mm. I had a whole so. conversation the other day with someone all about Nicole Kidman's skin. Yeah. About how that was one of the best qualities of her. I mean, you're very into your skincare. Yes, I do. Yeah, she's got that wonderful sort of translucent glass skin. Yeah, which especially when she has her original red hair, yes. which she rarely does now because mm -hmm. she seems to be permanently blonde as or in a wig. Yeah. She has this kind of Botticelli kind of quality yes, to her. Right. But um, we're, we're getting off track. Here. Well, <laughs> um, one more Kidman thing before we get into the episode. Um, I, doing my important research before every episode, as I do. Um, Guy, a couple of years ago, you did the hashtag Kidman World Cup on I Twitter. Did. Yeah. Um, and I had to look up where her Mrs. Coulter came in that. It did not do well. No, it went out in the first round yeah. in Group E up against Human Stain, Lion, Moulin Rouge, and the Golden Compass. I mean, a tough draw, to be fair, going up against Moulin Rouge. Mm -hmm. but... Yeah, um, Moulin Rouge did go through with 76% of the votes <laughs> on that poll, and the Golden Compass, 6%. Oh, no. I hope it was above the Human Stain. Uh, the human's name was 4%, so yeah, just okay. about. <laughs> and uh, salvage some pride. Yes. Um, but hopefully this episode gets more than a 6% approval rating from us. Uh, <laughs> it's time to move on to episode four of His Dark Materials, which is called Armour. Now, before we delve into this one, I will just do a quick recap of episode three. Last week, we learned that along with Lord Asriel being Lyra's father, Mrs. Coulter is also her mother. We saw a lovely picture of Andrew Scott, who is apparently an explorer who traveled from our world into Lyra's. And we also saw Lyra finally use the alethiometer. That's the truth-telling golden compass, which told her and the Egyptian community she's been sheltering with one of the death of one of their own. 
Now, this one, episode four, Armour sees Lyra and the Egyptians on their journey north to rescue the stolen children, and they arrive at the town of Trollsund, which is kind of a port town. There they meet an American balloon traveller called Lee Scoresby and a polar bear and try and get them to join their expedition. Elsewhere, Lord Boreal, a man who's fond of jumping between worlds, continues his investigation into the mysterious Stanislaus Grumman, or is that John Parry, or is that Sexy Priest? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and Mrs. Coulter, she's up to her old trick. She's locked her ex in a cage and has got it surrounded by a furry, strong armory. It's a lot happening. It's a lot. And I've given you my own little wedge of dialogue there. And that's perhaps something that is maybe a, a, com- a good companion to this episode because it's certainly something we'll encounter. Um, but let's start at Trollison's, where a lot of this episode takes place. And our introduction to Lee Scoresby, the first scene of the episode He's on a balloon. There's some nice Americana twanging guitar. It's Lin-Manuel Miranda. And of course, he is singing. Of course. Guy, how did you feel about Lin? I mean, I was maybe half relieved when the close-up revealed that it was Lin-Manuel Miranda, not Mumford and Sons, because it was <laughs> sounding very dicey there for Mumford a minute. Mumford and Sons just in a hot air balloon. Exactly. You know, you know, the series had some surprises so far. I wouldn't put it past them. Um, he is... Doing a lot, um, and he's doing it in a very Lin-Manuel kind of wide-eyed, enthusiastic way, which um, I confess I am a bit allergic to. I kept having flashbacks to his uh, his chimney sweep in Mary Poppins Returns, which was also similarly kind of A for effort, super perky, really annoying. Um, but... He's getting into the spirit of the thing. I, I just needed him to dial it back like, yeah. about three notches. As a point of comparison, Louis, you wouldn't know this, um, but Sam Elliott, who's Bradley Cooper's brother in A yes. Star is Born, um, he is Lee in The Golden Compass. Okay, I yeah, so, that makes sense. And I don't really remember so much of that film that I've been able to make some of the characters disappear from my mind. But Sam Elliott's image has always remained because I yeah. think he is terrific casting for that role. I think he's possibly the single most successful element of the Golden Compass and the one I believe that Philip Pullman was happiest with because he had his issues with the film. But he, I remember him saying that Sam Elliott was exactly as he had imagined that character. There's a lot of distance between Sam Elliott and Lin-Manuel Miranda. So. <laughs> well, in terms energy, uh, the rhythm of their speech patterns, totally different. Sam Elliott yeah. has this slow Western draw. gravelly drawl. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's the opposite of Lin, isn't it? Very perky. Yeah. He certainly enters in a very chipper fashion. Um, and it's, it's very musical theatre. Yes. It's a bit of a shock, really. Yeah. But I think maybe we are finding it jarring because... This is just a character type that we have not seen in this show. And he's had, it's not someone that, it's because he's rubbing against people that may be serious or innocent. And he is totally different to all of the other characters. And I'm, I'm hoping that where this story goes, we're going to grow to love him. Because one of Lee's moments in the books is one of the most heart wrenching, most beautiful moments and i'm curious to see whether lynn can pull that off yeah and another part of lee's character that is incredibly important to mention is hester his hair demon 
And she gets her time to shine during a bar fight. And Lee enters a bar in Trollesund. He's on the hunt for his friend Yorick Bernison, who is, in fact, a polar bear. Missed opportunity not to call him Bearison. Yes, very, <laughs> very true. Um, and in this fight in the bar, you've got Hester doing running commentary in the background, saying things like, that was nice, love it. And whilst he's throwing people over the bar. And uh, I don't know about that. I guess she's kind of in key with Lin-Manuel Miranda's interpretation. Um, they they make sense together. They're just both individually quite surprising takes. I, I think, yeah, I wasn't expecting that whole relationship to be treated as comic relief in a way. Though, as you say, we have episodes where that might be emotionally developed. It will have to. Mm. He is the opposite of Yorick Bernison, mm-hmm. who is huge, burly, very quiet, and that is not Lin's Lee. Um, we should probably talk a little bit about Yorick, because Yorick has been tricked into losing his armour. Someone got him drunk, and his armour is very important to him. So he's been employed in this town of Trollos and perhaps kept captive and being forced to work in the metalworks, bending metal because he's so strong. This this race of bears, the Panzerborn, are known for their metalworking skills and known for the importance of their armour. And that's really the key story thread, I think, of this episode, is meeting Yorick and trying to get him his armour back. And key to all of that is, of course, Lyra. She arrives on a boat with the Egyptians in Trollesund and... Again, there's a lot to take in, particularly in the first 10, 15 minutes of this episode about what Lyra's role will be, particularly between Lee and Yorick. She has to prove her ability of using the alethiometer because she bumps into Omid Jalili's Dr. Lansalius, who is a witch's consul, who's going to talk to the witches for her. And even as I'm saying this to you (laughs) and your eyes glaze over... (laughs) You're already forgetting that any of this happened, yeah? I was just thinking of that name that you just said and thinking, I don't remember that at all. Yeah. That's the guy in the room. The dark The guy in the room. The guy guy in the room. (laughs) Because there aren't many guys in rooms in this show. (laughs) Yeah. There's a guy in this room. (laughs) (laughs) There are two guys in this room. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Um, (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I will explain all of this because I think it's not super clear. Um, Dr. Lancelius, that's Omidjalili. He runs messages between humans and witches. And so can a human not at, well, yeah, a human can talk to a witch because we know that Father Coram does much more than talk to the witch. Yeah. Um, but he, he's like the official gateway spokesperson. Yeah. They say that they've got an alethiometer and she can read it. And so he gives her a test which is to go into his basement where all of these twigs in jars yeah. are. And this is... Um, Doesn't sound sinister at all. No, not at all. Um, this man <laughs> this man that I've never met. And these branches are cloud pine, which are basically bits of broomstick. And I think the point of comparison here would be, um, I can't remember his name, but John Hurt's shop in the Harry Potter films. Oh, yes. 10 points to anyone who can remember that. I'm sorry. Ollivander is the... That is Ollivander. No, that's... that's He's the wand guy. Yeah, that's John Hurt, isn't that's it? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Does, he sell, does he sell broomsticks as well? 
No, but like it's a similar. I'm sure feeling. someone will correct us on Twitter. No, but that's <laughs> but it was the it was the ones that I was thinking of, like yeah. wandering into this space. Yeah. There's all these little bits of wood, and one of them is going to be important. It okay. feels like that moment. And to prove that she knows how to use the alethiometer, he asks her which one belongs to Seraphina Pakala, a specific witch, and she uses the device and it tells her. Lo and behold, everyone trusts Lyra. We believe in the alethiometer. And she asks him, if we're doing this quest, what is the one thing we need? And he says, you must acquire the services of an armoured bear. And that's how Lyra knows that she needs to go and get Yorick Burnison. But that's perhaps not the most interesting part of this conversation, because there are a few key words that I'm going to flag for listeners that are certainly going to come into play. Um, that are, Although they're brushed off quite easily here, they're quite sinister for sure. There's a mention of intercision. There's a mention of child cutters. Uh, and, and a bit later on, in terms of the rumours of what they're doing in this station up in the north, it's about those who search for dust and the dust hunters. Now, considering that children are being taken and so much of the evil in this show comes from religion, the word intercision, child cutters, it certainly comes with a lot of weight. And going back to what we were saying about coming to these stories as adults, it's not something I would have really thought about as a child. Yeah, they're quite loaded concepts, aren't they? And I think the series is treating them in a fairly, I don't want to say dry, but a fairly sort of adult way. They're not sort of hyping them up too much. But I feel that the way they're sort of teasing them, I don't know, perhaps it could be with a bit more, I don't know, slightly more dramatic menace. Yeah. Louis, do you have any sense of the station and what's happening not there? Really. Yeah, because that, that's obviously our, our big of, final in, location, and I'm not sure how clear the yeah. sense of direction towards that in is. In my imagination, it's the station from, what's the, the horror film where it's set? The thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, in my brain, that's what it is. I, I don't think that's that bad. It's <laughs> not far off, no. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I don't know what indecision or... I mean, child cutters doesn't sound great. No. They're quite is, a simple concept. Yeah, and yeah. it certainly it instantly brings up images of the child snatcher. And um, yeah. if, if I am a, an eight-year-old watching this with my parents, I am very scared at those phrases that are coming up. There is the location of Bolvangar, which is translated in the show as fields of evil, which I think doing that in the show is a little mean, because that's for anyone that wants to go and look up some of yeah. the different meanings. Like Pullman is so good with language and just inputting meaning into very acute words and that's not quite the fun of it you know and also another name for dust within this series that's dust with a couple to capital d is the rusikov field so i think it's quite fitting for these experiments to be happening in the location deemed the field of evil uh, but maybe that's an, that's one for a bit of a deeper dive into dust and all of it means I mean, five books in, we're still not entirely sure. Now, along with all of this that's happening, I did say there's a lot happening in this one dialogue-wise. Um, I want to take a moment to talk about James Cosmo, Father Corum. Mm -hmm. And I think we all agree before we mention this, he's proving to be a bit of a highlight in this one. I yeah. think yeah. this, yeah, finding out his back, a bit about his backstory was probably my favourite element of the mm. whole episode. Yeah. And I think, but again, that was skated over so quickly. It is skated over quickly, but his performance is so good that I don't mind this being just such a blatant bit of exposition. Mm. Yeah. 
I think he's been really imaginatively cast. I like the way he kind of brings both a kind of gruffness and a slightly paternal nature to mm. the role. Because that, that role could go either way. He could be quite sort of chilly. And I, I think he's he's just... You're just kind of rooting for him without... While he still kind of holds a bit of a bit of intrigue. Yeah, um, and, and I don't think it feels manipulative when he gets wet-eyed about the situation. No. It, it feels authentic. And he, there's also, at the end of that scene, he goes and he just gently... Um, touches Lyra's cheek, mm. which is so almost so quiet you could miss it. Yeah, yeah, and because I think that the the Egyptians are presented as perhaps quite gruff and quite physical, yeah. and it's these little moments between yeah. Father Corum, yeah, John Farr, Mark Costa that they get. It's important that they get these moments. I have to say that James Cosmo and Daphne Keane as Lyra, I think, have really lovely mm-hmm. kind of chemistry together, and that's. That's hard to get. It happens or it doesn't, and I think they they clearly click well. Yeah, um, I will just fill in there that Father Coram's backstory is that he actually had a relationship with the witch Seraphina Pakala. That's the witch that Lyra picked the cloud pine of, and Father Coram, yeah, had a relationship with her. They had a child. They were um, in love. Yeah, um, and that child died, and in their grief, they split apart. And she fled, and he did not. But that leads us to the meeting of a demon and a witch's demon, which can separate. Like, this demon is nowhere near her witch. And I have a thought about this. Okay. If we go back a couple of episodes, and we think back to Mrs. Coulter, and what she's able to do with her demon, she is also able to separate is Mrs. Coulter a witch? Well, that's a big question, Louis. Is this we something should... else you're going to cut out? No, I won't. Because I've guessed something. No, I, I, I wouldn't dream of cutting something out <laughs> like that. But I think that's certainly a good theory to put up on the theory board. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Guys, that ever crossed your mind? It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm. She doesn't I can't seem witch-like. No, um, I mean, we haven't seen her hop on a broomstick and, I guess and fly out of her lovely we apartment. haven't met the witches of that reality yet so. yeah um yeah i was i was expecting some witch action here but we did get the demon kaiser uh voiced by david Suchet. that's poirot <laughs> which was just lovely to hear sadly not in a kind of french accent no that which... would have been better yeah you had a little mustache to twirl yeah <laughs> anyway i mean so you, could, you could hear the mustache <laughs> <laughs> um but this is this is a change uh, and i'm going to be one of those annoying book readers that talks about the things that they've changed and we have spoken about how important the animal that a demon settles in can be. And in the books, Seraphina's demon is a goose. And here it's a gyra falcon. A goose is much le- less sexier than a, a falcon. I don't know, Guy, can a goose be sexy? Geese are quite um, aggressive. Uh, they're sort of aggressive, yeah. They're not sexy. No, they're, they can they're be not... graceful. A yeah. graceful goose. It can be graceful and violent at once. You but know, they're which not, they're not swans, dynamic. are they? They're yeah. not falcons either. No. Okay, so what do you think then the show wants us to think about Serafina if she's saying, if her demon is a falcon? What does that tell us? I mean, because the logic of the demons is a bit like the way we always say that, you know, owners of dogs come to resemble their pets. Mm-hmm. Or, um, and I think, you know, you think of falcon or any bird of prey, you think of 
a creature that is kind of calculating and powerful and crafty and a survivor, which, you know, may- maybe geese have those qualities as well, but they don't seem as obvious. And also maybe a sort of element of being an onlooker. Mm. You know, yeah. how birds of prey, they circle. Yeah. Yeah. I also really like the relationship that Kaiser and Father Coram instantly have. Mm-hmm. Like they haven't seen each other for its implied decades. And it's just calm, respect, uh, understanding between them. And despite the fact that presumably James Cosmo is looking at a falcon that can't talk back to him or a CGI blob <laughs> and nothing got to give respect to both of those performances. Yeah. That's not the only bit of demon development that we get here, because it's time to move on to Yorick Bernison, the Panzerbjorn polar bear who's at the centre of this episode. And his plot is that he doesn't have his armour. It's incredibly important to him. Lyra can read the alethiometer, tell him where his armour is, where the town have been hiding it, and go and get it back. And it's revealed that, in a way, his armour is like his demon. Mm. And they do kind of spell that out, which is a bit of a shame. Um, But it is really interesting that in the humans in this world, they, as they come of age, their demons settle. They decide who they are as people or as animals. And Yorick Bernison's making himself... Like a polar bear or a pantsavion will reach a point in its life where it has the ability to craft its own soul. It's huge. (laughs) It's a a big idea. I guess an animal couldn't have an animal as a demon. That's very true, yeah. Well, um, and later in the episode, there's another thing that an animal can't have that is perhaps being offered as well. Um, Let's talk about Yorick Bernison then, because in all the imagery in The Golden Compass, in all the imagery for this show in terms of marketing, that polar bear has got front and centre. And this has certainly been something that people have been building up to. And if I'm honest, I'm not sure it had the quite the kind of shattering impact I wanted. Yeah? Yeah. Is that fair? It feels to me like they're underplaying him slightly. And it's also interesting that in the film, Yorick is voiced by Ian McKellen, Mm -hmm. who is... That was kind of a clear selling point and star attraction of the film. And uh, here he's voiced by an actor called Joe Tanberg, who, no disrespect to him, I think he's actually doing a very fine job, but they're not making him as much of a star attraction, that character, as the film did. Ian McKellen's voice comes with instant weight to it. And remember at that time... An authority. Yeah, he is still totally in the cultural sphere as Gandalf. Mm -hmm. And people will associate that prestige with that tone of voice. And you're right, I'm not sure we're getting that. And given that, you know, we have, you know, actors like David Suchet or Helen McCrory um, voicing other demons, I would have expected them to go a a different way with with Yorick. So that's an interesting choice that they... They're trying to downplay him a bit. Yeah. Louis, you were really excited about the pants of your entering mm-hmm. the show. And it didn't quite do it for you either. No. But then I also quite enjoy the idea of this polar bear being a drunk. <laughs> yeah. And just a grumpy drunk. I think there's a line where he says, I'm grump. What does he say partic- specifically? 
Uh, oh, okay. I'm a grumpy bear. Or leave me alone, or <laughs> yeah. something. Yeah, he's a, he's a grumpy, grumpy old drunk bear. Um, but he does look really good. Yeah, I does think, he? I think he does. No, I'm not sure. Really, I'm not sure. I think basically just because the animals we've seen speaking so far have been on a much smaller scale, mm. as a polar bear obviously is huge. He's a big boy. Mm. So you're very. I, I was very aware of his mouth moving and it just not quite oh, matching I see. up. Yeah. So a, like a sense of disconnection. Yes. Yeah. Rather than. I mean, yeah, he looks like a real polar bear, but it was a sort of ventriloquist esque mm. element to me, okay. me. I think. I think the CGI certainly has moved on quite mm-hmm. a bit from the Oscar-winning polar bear of the 2007 film. I like that he's got a bit more kind of visual texture to him. He's a bit battered and scratched and bruised, which, especially with an animal on that scale as opposed to the others, there's slightly more of an uncanny valley barrier when he's speaking to the other characters or that one sort of scene where he's sort of roaring over the one. You can just feel that there's a bit of a disconnect there. Um, but I think they've they've done very well with him considering. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, and like the CGI stuff, I think it, it is impressive. Like there are shots of his paws on the ground where you can see the mud that yeah. seeped up through the individual strands of fur and all of that stuff is really impressive. Interestingly, in terms of all the reactions that have happened whilst Louis and I watched this show, Louis, you had a big lol when uh, Yorick started tearing up the town. It wasn't. I wasn't laughing. I was worried. Yeah. It was just seemed very chaotic. Yeah. I, I don't know why. I mean, obviously, he's just very angry that they took his his outfit. But you you weren't quite sold on it. No, and I definitely was not sold when he came out triumphant in his armor. No. What What's wrong with the armor? I don't know. There's just something that's very comical to me about it. Yeah, I think what they're doing with the armor is to give it the reverse of another polar bear's armor, who is very into regality and gold. And I'm a big fan of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah. So this is my first opportunity to bring that in. But I'm this is the, this is the, long, the cup of the carpenter yeah. from sort Indiana of Jones. Working bear's armor. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, in a way, it kind of looks like half of a worm has been yeah. put on top of him <laughs> but yeah this is yeah working man's yeah. working bear's armor and this is not got any extra frivol- yeah. frivolity it looks kind of homemade in a way mm-hmm. which i guess makes sense in in that context compared to um compared to your fur which that actually makes me like the armor more now that you've pointed that out louis does it make you like the armor anymore <laughs> i'll have to I'll think about it again when I see him next. Hopefully, I'll, I'm guessing he'll be around mm. for the rest of the season. He certainly will. Um, I did enjoy him trashing the town, though. You I enjoyed it. I, I thought that I was like a bit of a romp. Yeah. Yes, I really um, enjoyed that. And I also think I have to give my house to the production designer because I think their work on on the port town was really, really great. Mm-hmm. And I like that they didn't go too kind of twee or too period with them. That it actually looks like a you know, a, a kind of working port. I, I... Well, it was, it's an oil town, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, well, this is the important thing to remember is that these books aren't set as much as at times you might think that they have set 100, 150 years ago. Yeah. Like, this looks like 
a modern slum at times that's been crossed exactly. with Dover. Yeah. I feel uh, like it looks a lot like sort of maybe Scandinavian as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean that well that that's where they're heading for sure. Um, Particularly when you have a bear called Yorick but exactly, Bernison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although Yorick Bernison is a lot of this episode. He is paired up with perhaps only a one episode cameo of a character called Sisselman, who people might recognise as being played by Dudley Dursley from the Harry Potter series, who is played by Harry Melling. And we last saw him with no limbs in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the Coen Brothers film, putting in a pretty impressive performance for someone who either had a lot of dialogue in some scenes or none in another. Um, And I thought he was quite a good Mm -hmm. kind of pale bureaucrat for everyone to whip their anger on. Inspired casting, I thought. Mm -hmm. And at one point it looks like he's about to lose all his limbs again. So Mm -hmm. fun, fun interplay with his past roles there. Absolutely. All right. Um, so we must move away from Trollison where things are a little bit warmer uh, at the Magisterium with Mrs. Coulter. And not just Mrs. Coulter, but Mrs. Coulter and her hat. No, she's not wearing the hat yet in the Magisterium. <laughs> I think she's just wearing that fantastic like red wine coloured skirt suit. Which, yes, I think you're right, which is fabulous. Yeah. But I do think she should be wearing the hat at all times. All times. It gives her a... Yeah bigger presence which i didn't think was possible but it's wide <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly a wide hat um but yes there are there is lots of brilliant mrs Coulter costuming we've already had quite a lot of it but, but there mean- was there was a, a line from one of i don't know the name but one of the magisterium men and he offers her you know drink or food and he says i know how much he likes your sustenances Mm. And that was just glossed over. And I thought, we haven't seen her eat. I think we've seen her drink whiskey. Mm. But that seems like a loaded comment. Oh, well, I, I, I wouldn't I know how to expand on that. But perhaps, yeah. Um, maybe her sustenance is fantastic outfits. Perhaps. Yeah. Um, I think Mrs. Coulter is maybe where the costume designers are having their most fun. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. She looks fantastic and as we talked about them kind of playing with period a bit as mm-hmm. in you know it, it looks quite contemporary at some points but with her they've gone kind of full 1930s kind of Joan Crawfordy Hollywood glamour and I think she sort of it was to me it was quite Jackie O especially too, with the yeah. hat her yeah. winter wardrobe is my favorite so far I think I didn't think anything could top her silk pajamas but I think that hat is... yeah so as well as her accessories uh there's a reveal of her first name as well and i'd I'd like to ask you folks how do we feel about marissa works for me yeah i think because in a way she's one it's one of those names that you kind of don't want to know mrs coulter has such a good authority it humanizes her doesn't it is that that worrying um i don't know but for me there's only one marissa Mm. And, and you know who that is. Is that Marissa from the OC? Coop, yeah. So Marissa, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure about Marissa. I mean, maybe this Marissa becomes Marissa from the OC. Maybe this is just a prequel to the OC. Origin story. Yeah. I mean, the first Marissa I think of is Marissa Tomei, mm. who is very different, would be an interesting Mrs. Coulter. 
uh, especially in kind of my cousin Vinny mode. But um, I think if I divorce it from that context, it, there is a kind of, it's that sibilant S in it, which mm. does kind of give it a fairly officious mm. sound that, that works for Marissa Coulter. Well, it's that snake yeah. sound. Yeah. yeah. But what, what would you have called her if you could rename her, Jake? Oh, well, I have no idea. You know, Helen? Helen? Helen Coulter? No, that sounds too much like um, someone who would work in a nunnery, I think. Helen Coulter. Um, Marissa, I think, is quite quite right. Maybe it needs that S sound in there to pull it off. It's uh, also a little bit sexy, and I think that's, that's the true. way Ruth Wilson has been oh, playing her, which I found really, really fun yeah. and very different from how Nicole Kidman did it. What do you, What do you think the key differences are? Well, I think Nicole Kidman was also playing someone who is quite sort of glamorous and poised, but completely an ice princess. Mm. Um, whereas I think Ruth Wilson is playing her with a, yes, kind of hot-blooded beneath the surface. Well, I, I, think. I, I say, I think this Mrs. Coulter, Ruth Wilson's, is a physical threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You feel scared to be next to her just for your own physical safety. For sure. Um, yeah, and it, it, I think in other hands it could be a little wafy, uh, which it absolutely isn't. She's very sturdy. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, let's talk about her intimidation tactics because she visits the magisterium. Uh, she is told that she's going to be in lots of trouble because she had raided Oxford and stolen things from them or confiscated them and broken century-old traditions. But she, in a great moment of... <laughs> sarcastic slow clapping totally turns the tables and reveals that she has lord asriel in a cage controlled by bears who are under her control and that's that's the mrs coulter we want yeah who even without seeing her that you can totally believe that between meetings she's just been setting that up yes it's it it's what gets her off really You can tell how delighted she is by it. Yeah. Um, but I, is, has she actually got him? Oh, I don't know, Larry. Or is she just bluffing? Well, I mean, so much of this episode is about manipulation, mm-hmm. whether that's from Lyra or Mrs. Coulter, or from Lord Boreal, who gets a little cameo in this one. Um, he doesn't get much to do. He says that he's going to expose Ratty to the Magisterium. We don't know what that's going to be, but it shows that he's got some kind of leverage over someone on the inside. How that will play out, we don't know. And, and that's because he wants to he wants to use one of the alethiometers. Yes, he does. Everyone wants an alethiometer. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, we've we've learned in this episode a lot more about how the alethiometers work and how to read them. That in the magisterium there is someone who it will take weeks for them to figure something out using the alethiometer. Compare that to Lyra, who can be walking down the docks, take a glance at it, and immediately know where she needs to send Yorick to go and find his armor. But Boreal is continuing his quest to find Stanislas Grumman, and he wants to know how he can find what Grumman discovered. But we don't get much more than that. And that's really about it from Lord Boreal. Not as much to do on this one. Um, but let's go back to that manipulation because the episode dovetails with two stories of mother and daughter manipulating men in quite a fun way. Um, Lyra gets her one up on Lee. She tells him that she knows how to play cards and ultimately the card that she's card game she's been playing with him over the whole 
episode is to get him involved in their expedition. And that's where we kind of leave him. She tricks him into joining them and Yorick along the way with his new armor that Louis so loves. But he's not the only bear. That's the really the penultimate scene of the episode is seeing Mrs. Coulter with another bear, Jofa Ragnarsson. Who who, lives in a cave. He does live in a cave. And he is voiced by Peter Serafinovich. And how do we feel about Yofa? I liked him. You liked him? Mm. Guy's not so sure. Well, they, they, they tease him in this way that it's almost like he's a mythical creature at first. Because you, you don't yeah. see him for a long time. You just hear his voice. Yeah. And that's just very um, intimidating, I think. But I think I think he has a lot of promise. Mm. I, I like the kind of glimpse that we got, as you were saying earlier, of his kind of gilded... It's much more extra guess than... Up. Yeah, exactly. Ex. Really yes. matches Mrs. Coulter very oh, well. Oh, yeah. yeah. An excellent accessory. Yeah. And it's revealed that Yofa managed to get Yorick drunk and the process of Yorick getting drunk, being stripped of his armor, all the chaos in the town, that all comes back to this which is revealed is all under Mrs. Coulter's control. She's pulling all of the At strings. At least we now know that you sh- should never f- give a bear spirits. Yeah. Absolutely true. <laughs> but she is offering him something in return for his cooperation, which is something really interesting, which is a baptism, which is something that has never been offered to a Panzerbjorn. This is for humans. And this is one of those areas where if I was getting into it as a 12, 13-year-old Catholic schoolboy reading it, I would have no idea where to start with this. And if I'm honest, however long later, I'm still not quite sure. But the idea of baptism, of holy virtue, basically being offered as currency, totally undercuts any sense of spiritual authority that the magisterium or the church really has. Mm. It's really interesting stuff, and I'm curious how far it will go into that. Um, but we do, that's where we leave it, really, um, with Yofa apparently on the throne for the Panzerbjorn polar bears guarding Lord Asriel, who apparently has some kind of lab up there as well. We cut back to Trollison, and everyone for the second episode in a row seems to be heading north. It's a busy one, isn't it, this episode? There's a lot happening, and yet in the middle, there's a long kind of segment where it feels like you're being told a lot of stuff, but you're not seeing a lot of action. Mm. Um, All that stuff in in the lab with the the twigs that we were talking about has not been, I think, visualised in a particularly engaging or even particularly explanatory way. I think people who don't know the books in advance mm. might be quite perplexed by everything yeah. that was happening there. Yeah. I, I think perhaps some flashbacks well done would be an, a nice added texture. Yeah. Just because I did find myself drifting off in this episode, which I didn't expect when you have, you know, witches talking bears. Mm. But guy, you think this is a step up from episode three? Well, I think, in terms of the high points of it, yes. I thought episode three was setting up a lot of things and waiting for the... It, it was sort of a the kind of bridging episode that you need before 
you know, before you start introducing the, the Lin-Manuel Miranda-ness of it and the the drunken polar bear-ness of it all. Um, so I, I don't think it was a bad episode, but I think it was... It, it knew its place in, in the order of things. Yeah. I think it's still revving up. To me, this feels like a transitional episode, mm-hmm. as does this period in the book. Mm. Um, Trollocend is a, is a gateway to the north. It's a port. And that is, to me, what this episode is. It's transactional. Mm-hmm. It's import-export of information, of characters. And it's not necessarily like Oxford or like Bolvangar its own location that has its own sense of yeah. character and importance to it. Um, but it serves a purpose. And this is this is where the plot kicks in yeah. to second gear, I think. I must say I've been surprised, pleasantly, I think, by how slowly they've been taking it mm. throughout. I mean, obviously, I knew in advance that it was eight episodes, but it still feels like the storytelling has been very measured even within that length. Mm. Um, I know we're technically at the halfway point, but to me, it doesn't even feel like we're we're there yet. Yeah, I'd much rather it was going slow than it was going fast. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah. and as I said with the film, that was the the big problem. I mean, so much of what we talked about today has you know went by in the blink of an eye in the film. Mm. All right. Uh, so that was episode four, Armor, and it's now my favorite part of the show. We can talk about our inner demons. So, Louis, we are over these eight episodes on a quest to try and figure out what your demon is. Yeah. Um, last week, we maybe figured out it could be a red panda. Yeah. But you're not quite but settled on that. I don't think it's settled. Yeah. Guy, do you have any immediate thoughts on what Louis' demon might be? We've talked about gooses, falcons, any of that in there? Taylor Swift and cats. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, none. That that would be needlessly harsh on anyone. <laughs> I think that not not a bird. I feel more I don't like think a, I'm bird-like. You're a ground dweller. I think I, I'm more of a mammal. More like, like a, a a wily, graceful mammal. Yeah, because oh. a red a red panda like would this. be hanging out in a tree, and I can't imagine you staying like off heights, the ground. Yeah, but I don't like heights. Yeah, so but I think rather than it something that reflects me, I think like Arena was saying in last week's episode, I think my demon is going to be someone who maybe complements my personality and my traits rather than being a reflection of it. Okay. Because I just can't... I've been I've been researching this week all the different families of mammals and I just can't... I can't pin it down. I'm a bit of an elephant as well, but I couldn't have an elephant as a demon. Definitely be, not an elephant. It would be so difficult to get around. Yeah. Imagine trying to go shopping with an elephant. Are there any demons who are particularly good at cooking? Because I'm I'm smelling that casserole that you've been making. I don't know. Do animals cook? I don't know. They Squirrels? They, they do nurture. You yeah. Know. yeah. A squirrel, the way they kind of store food for the winter. You know, I like that. that. I do like make to sense. make jams. Yeah. You do. And chutneys. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe something that hibernates. That stores enough food that it can able to just sleep through winter. I think you'd enjoy that. I do love to sleep. Yeah, so that would be some kind of bear, wouldn't it? So we're really each week we're peeling yeah. away. Yeah, and getting a small to like bear though. A yeah. small bear, okay. not a large scary one. Okay, so not grizzly. We've gone from no. panda to bear. I think we're getting closer. We will. We will yeah. iron this out, guy. A Paddington style bear. Ooh. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And you do like making chili jam. He likes making marmalade. Mm-hmm. Close enough. Absolutely. I also like 
outerwear. He likes outerwear. <laughs> he does like outerwear. <laughs> um, Guy, you've had, what, 15 years to have a think about what your demon might be. Have you have you come to any conclusions? And yet, I clearly haven't thought about it enough. Um, <laughs> That's funny because all of our guests so far have said, I've been pondering this for decades. <laughs> but I feel, I mean, I don't feel that my demon would be necessarily a wild animal. I think it would be quite an urban animal. Um, even fox? Like an a urban fox, fox? A fox, an urban fox, or particularly kind of liberated house cat. Yes. Mm, could could work for me. Okay. With, okay. A, with a slightly mean streak. Mm-hmm. A liberated house cat with a mean streak. That's so good. <laughs> yes, we can absolutely let you settle on that one. Um, and that that's the end of this week's episode. And we look forward to exploring even more worlds of His Dark Materials with you on Dustbusters. If you want to keep up with all of us, Guy, you're on Twitter as... At, at Guy Lodge. That's an easy one to remember. And of course, Louis, you are there as... At Louisa Maycock. And I'm there as at Jake H. Cunningham. And make sure you keep an eye on that account for any giveaways for lots of great dark materials and Book of Dust merchandise that Penguin Random House have been kind enough to share with me. Thank you so much for listening. Dustbusters is produced by Jake Cunningham. That's me. Our music is by Dan Yakano. And the show is edited by Jamie Maisner.